If it's Wednesday, we have Seth Richardson on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Seth and Laura Johnston and Lisa Garvin. It's a Wednesday in Northeast Ohio with a foot of snow on the ground or more. Whoopee. <laughs> yeah, but now it's packing snow. It's warm enough. I told my kids, I was like, we are having a snowball fight because that is going to be fun. Yeah, I might have to ask Chris if we can take the afternoon off to have one of our own. So we'll figure that out, though. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get you to the afternoon. Why isn't Northeast Ohio ever in the running for huge new factories like the Peloton plant being built near Toledo or the Intel microchip plant planned near Columbus? Seth, we, we talked a little bit about this last week, about the, the dearth of big tracks of land, but it's a little bit more than that. What did we find when we went out to look at this? Well, it it is about, you know, somewhat about the big tracts of land, but, it, you know, Cuyahoga County does have land available. It's just that we don't necessarily have the contiguous land to have a, a, um, a factory of this size coming in. And you also have companies that are worried about several other factors up here, uh, because anywhere that you do have land in Northeast Ohio um, is going to be further away from the airport and transportation hubs and the highways and those sorts of things that you need, just any kind of transportation, really. So those sort of things compound, at least for Cuyahoga County specifically. But even when you start looking at some of the other outlying counties, you know, you get further and further away from Burke or, or not Burke from uh, Hopkins. And uh, it, it just it makes it difficult to really decide on something like that. And the other big factor is these companies yeah, there might be land available that you can say, well, hey, if you give us a little bit of time, we can definitely get this ready. But companies don't want to hear that. They want to hear, yeah, we're good to go. We can make this happen next week. We can we can have this ready and we can be ready to go. Well, when when you look at Intel, I, that, that's a once in a lifetime kind of investment in Ohio. These are the holy grail of economic development dreams. So there's not a lot of them. I mean, you don't see a lot of companies spending $100 million on a factory. What what the Northeast Ohio economy is made of is a lot of smaller bites of the apple. And we have plenty of sites for that. Right. I mean, if you're if you're going to employ a few thousand or a few hundred, we can accommodate that. It's just these enormous sites that are sought. We don't have the capacity for. Yeah, definitely. We have the space for that. Um, the, the, the only um, sort of shortcoming for some of the sites around, uh, you know, Cuyahoga County, Northeast Ohio, is that because we're an old industrial, you know, sort of area, we've had industry for quite some time. You know, some of these sites they, that may be able to be offered up are going to need environmental remediation of some kind. They're going to gotta have to figure out the environmental impact because, you know, practices back in the day weren't exactly the best in terms of pollution and whatnot. So that does play a factor as well. But yeah, it, it, it's unlikely that, hey, maybe this, you know, 10,000 employee factory or whatever is going to come to Northeast Ohio, but you can definitely fit a ton of 200, 300, 400, 500 employee factories around the area. Well, when you bring in a factory that large, you are bringing in lots of people and infrastructure. They're going to have to take out pretty much a forest to uh, to do it. So th this is an all upside. The people down there are going to have to make some accommodations for this thing. It's a great infusion of of money into the state. It's a game changer for the kind of economy we have. But it's all not all rainbows and unicorns. Uh, 
that 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 we avoid, right? Well, hopefully they plan appropriately because what you do see some of the times with these factories that come in, uh, and it, this isn't specific to any area or anything. It's just you have a factory come in and you account for okay, that's you know however many thousand people, but you don't consider the the other people that that brings in, whether it's, you know, satellite uh, businesses that pop up or anything. And it can really put a strain on a lot of infrastructure there too. You think about even just traffic congestion, right? If you don't have the roadways built to accommodate all this, you know, new movement back and forth between both residents and the uh, business, then that, that, that can really be a problem. Okay. Let's, uh, let's stick with this, Lisa, because mm -hmm. this is such a game changer for Ohio. When we think of manufacturing in Northeast Ohio, we think of the fiery steel plants and the auto factories. But with Intel planning to invest in a microchip plant, what would people expect to see there? How is it different from what we consider traditional heavy-duty manufacturing? Well, the thing with semiconductor chips is, first of all, they're small. And if you think about the ingredients that's used to make up these chips, they're even smaller. So the Intel plant is, it's, it's probably one of the safest places in the world. I mean, it's completely dust-free. All of their workers have to wear what accounts to a hazmat suit because you don't want to introduce any contaminants or any dirt into the chip making process. So it's a very clean, sterile facility. And, and they're dealing with a lot of metals. I mean, they're layering just very thin layers of gold and silver and other rare metals onto these chips. And so it, it's quite a different you know, when you think about, you know, the steel mills, it's all dirty and noisy and guys all sweaty in their overalls and everything. Well, it's not like that in a chip manufacturing plant. Um, Ohio, you know, they picked Ohio, um, thank goodness. But, you know, the things that they're looking for, for a chip plant, they need a huge water supply close by and they need affordable electricity. For example, the Intel plant in Ocotillo, Arizona, they used uh, 800 million gallons and of water and 509 million kilowatt hours just in the third quarter of last year. So that's a huge, you know, water and energy usage thing. Um, they're hoping that the campus here at, that's going to be in New Albany near Columbus will have a solar array. They're thinking they might use some sort of renewable energy to kind of help with that. And it's interesting. I knew that Ohio and especially Northeast Ohio is pretty well placed nationally, but Ohio is within 600 miles of markets in 30 states. So that leaves us, even though Intel is not here in Northeast Ohio, we could benefit from that because there will be downstream businesses and upstream businesses that will support this plant that we could probably accommodate here in Northeast Ohio. You know, when you talk about the needs for water, you've got Lake Erie Hello. in Northeast Ohio. Where do they plan to get all of it for from central Ohio. You know, they haven't said that. You know, what's the river that runs through Columbus? I don't even the know. The Olentangy? Oh, okay, yeah. But, and a lot of the Columbus water comes from the Hoover Reservoir ah. over in Westerville. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's where. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What did we learn when the Ohio Redistricting Commission met Tuesday for the first time since getting slapped by the Ohio Supreme Court for gerrymandering the legislative maps in spite of voter mandates to create fair maps. Laura, what did they do? Did we get any clue? 
We did a little bit. Mike DeWine convened the commission. This has all the same players, except for Amelia Sykes, who's now running for Congress, has been replaced with Alison Russo, the new House Minority Leader. The biggest news out of this may be that the aides of both the Republicans and the Democrats on the commission, they will be actually drawing the maps. They met together and went over the basic process of how this is, is going to work, which is huge because last time it was just basically Huffman and Cup saying, draw some maps. So um that's good good news and now we the deadline we believe is saturday they originally thought it would be monday next week because the original deadline fell on a weekend and the supreme court doesn't generally have weekend deadlines but their lawyers say nope get it done by saturday so we know when they have to be done and dewine ran through the highlights of last week's supreme court ruling which i think we're all pretty familiar with and i love this that cup make it sound like it was all a misunderstanding <laughs> he said now the court gave us some definition as to what was previously <laughs> undefined <laughs> sure man that guy is just the worst bad news he should he should hide his face in shame for what he tried to pull off so they got four days. Today's Wednesday. They got to do this by, I guess, the close of business Saturday. But the truth is they have programs that could do this in minutes, right? Yes, absolutely. And the Supreme Court referred to that in their decision. And they say that Dr. Rodden, who's an expert, drew a plan that was compliant with the state constitution and was more proportional to the partisan lines, which is 54%, 46% Republican Democrat in Ohio. And that would give a, a map about 18 Republican majority to 15 Democrats in the Senate, 56 to 43 in the house which would no longer be veto proof so look they already have an example they could just say hey we want that one so seth cup and huffman are bad guys they did everything they could to corrupt this system i mean every step of the way and the supreme court called them out on it both with this and congressional are there maneuvers left for them to try and continue to corrupt it or do you get the feeling that the other politicians involved in this who are up for re-election this year are fed up with those guys and just want to get this done? I think if you look behind the scenes of what happened and we saw some of that come out during the uh, the um, court case, right, where we got records and text messages and whatnot, there's obviously a little, you know, at least some feeling of discontent with Cup and Huffman. But, you know, I, I, I've I've kind of learned in covering politics that uh, you should you should never assume that there's no way for a politician to maneuver around something that they're told <laughs> to do. So, you know, is there a maneuver left? Maybe I, I would guess probably so. You would think that they maybe went in with a plan. Maybe they just went in, you know, full tilt and said, hey, like, let's you know, we're just going to do it. Um as well, far let me, as what let me that play, maneuver might let, be. Let me play conspiracy theorist. So, so say they knew that the Supreme Court was going to toss out the first version of the maps. So they go so far over the line, so ridiculously against the will of the voters that if they come back in round two and don't quite do proportionality, people say, okay, okay, it's better. We're tired of dealing with this. I mean, was this all a Yeah, ploy? I think that's probably what the plan was. I think that's probably what the plan was from the get go, right? If you go so far in one direction when you, you know, it's it's uh, shifting the Overton window, if people know what that is, right? What is acceptable to people. So if you make something that is, you know, so far in one direction that it shifts what people say and now they're like, well, you know, it's not 64, it's only, you know, 60 or 59 at this point or something like that. Yes, I, I, I think that was probably uh, baked into their strategy. Although... 
the Supreme Court could not have been more clear about what the ratio should be. So, I mean, the Supreme Court almost, it's almost like they saw that coming and said, yeah, we're not going to let him do that. Here's the numbers. Do this. Which, if they don't do those numbers, the Democrats are going to scream. They're going to say, we have the, the instructions from the Supreme Court on to follow the will of the voters. Is it going to be a little bit harder to do that, given how tightly the Supreme Court ruling was written? I do think that the Supreme Court uh, decision was pretty direct in you know what they basically said. It wasn't just so much like, hey, go take another stab at this. They said... Hey, this is what you did wrong. Here is how you did it wrong in multiple ways. They cited, you know, like they talked about the splits in Summit in Cuyahoga County. They talked about, um, you well, know, no, that was. I'm sorry, that was a congressional. You're conflating congressional. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I am. The other thing they did is they said, "Bring it back." They they did not give up jurisdiction. They yes. Said, right. When That's, you're done, that is a big key key component and the, of the it. The League of Women Voters gets to have a say. The people who brought the suit in the first place get to say, "Okay, we think this is acceptable or not." Yeah. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. How has Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb fixed what had been a giant problem impeding the success of Cuyahoga County's new diversion center, limiting its use for people with minor crimes but suffering mental health and addiction issues? Seth, this is one of the things that Armin Budish did right. There aren't many of those that we can cite in this most recent term of the county executive, but this was a noble effort to treat people better and Cleveland under Mayor Frank Jackson completely thwarted it. How is Justin Bibb fixing that? Yeah, and Frank Jackson, when he did issue this edict that said that police officers had to get permission from the city prosecutor's office before they could take somebody to the diversion center, that angered a lot of advocates, really, right? And if, if you go back to during the election, um, I believe both the candidates, uh, Justin Bibb and Kevin Kelly, said that they would rescind that. They would they would overturn that. So you know, Justin Bibb, hey, you know, credit to him, kept his promise, said that now they do, you know, uh, police officers do not have to have permission from the city prosecutor's office before taking someone to get mental health or drug treatment, um, you know, at the at the diversion center. And, you know, one of the effects that we saw from the, you know, that city, the the city edict um, from the Frank Jackson era was that you didn't you didn't have much population going through the diversion center. Yeah, the 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 whole purpose of this was to get people out of jail who were suffering. It was to to recognize that people who commit minor crimes often have issues that if you deal with the issues, you don't need to penalize them. You don't have to spend the money to lock them up. And Cleveland arrests far more than anybody else. I mean, probably more than every other suburb joined together. And yet they had a handful of people going to the diversion center. It's it just destroyed the whole purpose of the thing and they never really explained why i mean you never heard from jackson why he was standing by the prosecutor you never heard a good explanation for the prosecutor was this just a a, a fighting match between county and city government that the city wasn't going to be corralled into doing something that was the county's idea I, I honestly just don't know. It that seems to actually make the most sense to me, right? That this this wasn't a city initiative, so the city wasn't gonna play ball or something like that, because I don't really know anyone who was totally on board with this edict, right? Like for, you know, by all accounts, pretty much every, you know, all the activists in the area did not like it. Um, I, I didn't hear anybody except for the Jackson administration speak in favor of it. So it's like, wh why would you do this? Why would you undermine what the goal was, which is to 
keep, you know, to offer mental health treatment or to offer drug addiction treatment to people who need it rather than putting them, you know, through the court system or into jails or anything like that and overcrowding the criminal justice system. It, it, it was a really sort of it's just a strange uh, move. And, and then yeah. to just stand by it so hardcore didn't that just didn't make sense. Right. Yeah, there well, were some inexplicable uh, decisions made by the Jackson administration toward the end of his final term. This was this was one because this is what he was about. Right. I mean, he would always say, I'm here to serve the least of us. And he believes in reforming the justice system. And this was the biggest step that we had taken to do that. And he blocked it. It didn't make sense. Congratulations to Justin Bibb for making the change. And now let's see how much of an effect that diversion center can have on people's lives. You're listening to Today in Ohio, a key figure in the movement that legalized gay marriage in the United States is entering a race for Congress in Ohio. Who is he and which district is he seeking, Laura? This is Jim Obergefell, and he's seeking the 89th House District. That's currently held by Republican DJ Swearingen of Huron. This district covers Erie and Ottawa counties, including, oh, I'm going to keep messing up this game's name. I really hope I get to talk to him sometime and get the right pronunciation, but Oakbergfell's hometown of Sandusky. So he said he'll prioritize protecting Lake Erie and all of the North Coast. He wants a bipartisan Lake Erie caucus to focus on the water day one on the job. He wants to bring back well well-paid jobs to the area, boot out corruption in the state government, and be a champion for the LGBTQ plus community. He, but he made his name as a lead plaintiff in the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court case that made gay marriage legal throughout the United States because he was in Cincinnati at the time. He had married a man named John Arthur in Maryland when Arthur was terminally ill, and then he sued the state of Ohio for failing to recognize him as Arthur's spouse on his death certificate. So after that ruling, he relocated from Cincinnati to D.C., then to Columbus, and he moved back to Sandusky in June to be closer to his family. He decided to run for office as a continuation of this pursuit of public service and wanting to make the world a better place. Seth, does he have any chance? I actually, again, this is going to depend on how the maps shake out that we talked about earlier. I do think he's a really good candidate um, because, you know, when you talk about, uh, you know, state legislative candidates and whatnot, right, uh, what is the biggest challenge that they often face? It's fundraising. And here you have a national figure, you know, uh, especially in Democratic politics, people recognize the name. And, you know, he'll be able to raise money and he'll probably be able to, he'll probably excite um He'll have a more excited base, I think, for him just because he does have some celebrity about him. So I, I do think he's actually a pretty good candidate, again, depending on how the maps shake out. And Sandusky is not like a super conservative area either, right? I mean, it's, you know, it's elected Democrats in the past. It's, it's all just a matter of how those maps get drawn out. Well, let me ask it this way. You know, Ohio is known across the land as the home of Jim Jordan, one of the most ridiculous people in Congress in history. And it, and it really does not stand us well with reasonable, thoughtful people. I mean, he's, he's just not a good guy. He makes stuff up. He's, you know, super loyal to Donald Trump. And it's been embarrassing. I can't tell you how many people I've heard said, I can't believe he's the face of Ohio. And I've actually heard from people who want to move out of the state because they don't want that to be who stands for them. How could this change that? I mean, this is somebody that was central in one of the biggest, biggest decisions in the mm -hmm. history of the Supreme Court. 
and to have that person from Ohio would be kind of a good balance to the ridiculous annex of Jim Jordan, right? I I think so. And think about it. He's his platform. I mean, we've heard talking points, you know, bringing good jobs back to the region, but to fight for LGBTQ plus rights and to protect the water, those plat that platform could be very popular with younger, more progressive voters. And I think Seth is right. Sandusky is not super, super conservative. They've had Democratic representatives in the past. And I mean, the world is changing. I'd like to think that he has a chance and that people would love to see this man represent Ohio. It would just be nice to have people think of Ohio and not see Jim Jordan's face. <laughs> Maybe to balance it with somebody who's not wild and crazy and I mean, doing silly Trump. Jim answers. Jordan and Bob, you know, Bob Cobb and Huffman and all those <laughs> right, people. Right. It's today in Ohio. Federal prosecutors have charged a lot of people in the past year. You have to go back a long way to find a year where they charged as many. Lisa, how many people do they charge and why are they charging so many people in federal court? Federal prosecutors in the Northern District of Ohio have brought 846 criminal cases in 2021, and this is despite closures during the pandemic, and the number of these criminal indictments has doubled since 1991, also kind of bucks a nationwide trend that saw significant decreases in these kinds of indictments during the pandemic. This is all part of a the Federal Department of Justice effort to reduce violent crime in urban and suburban areas. So basically what they did was they said, okay, if you have defendants with prior criminal violence that are arrested with weapons, they should probably go through the federal court where they'll get a tougher sentence. And let me tell you, I was a I covered federal courts for the Southern District of Texas when I was a reporter back in Houston back in the late 80s, early 90s. And back then, we both we basically covered white-collar crime, what they called RICO, racketeering statutes. That was really the only kind of thing you would see there of a criminal nature in federal court. So you drug, you know, like drug uh, organizations, organized crime and white collar crime. So this is a big shift from the 1990s. I remember when we'd get a good drug, you know, case, you know, the reporters would get excited. It's like, oh, something good and and dramatic to cover in federal court. So, yeah, this is a a shift, you know, towards getting these people because in, in the federal level, they have sentencing guidelines that they have to follow. So they can't just, you know, go rogue and just impose whatever sentence they want. They do have to follow these guidelines. And they're pretty tough for, you know, people with priors who have used weapons in the commission of a crime. So yeah, this is, and this is big for, you know, the Northern District of Ohio. Usually we average about 400 to 650 of these indictments a year, and it started rising in 2017 after Trump took office. Well, I guess I want to ask then, if they're charging all these people and they're putting all these these gun felons away, how has that done in reducing our gun violence problem in Cleveland. Did we see less of it last year? No, we didn't because we had, you know, we had 170 murders in Cleveland last year and a huge rise in carjackings. And the murder rate last year was the second highest in 30 years. So yeah, it hasn't done a lot. And it's also loaded up the dockets of these federal judges, you know, and some of these cases start at the local level. And then they're adopted from these local, you know, law enforcement to the federal level. So, uh, yeah, those 15 judges on the on the federal bench here are going to be pretty busy with full dockets. Well, it raises some questions about the longstanding claim of the past 10 years that very few people account for the bulk of the gun violence. And if you remove them from the streets and put them in prison, 
you'll reduce gun violence. It, that's clearly not happening. I mean, when we did the recent carjacking story that showed more and more young people are getting guns and doing carjackings. So it's great that we're moving gun criminals from the street because they're dangerous, but it seems like we need other methods to reduce gun violence, which probably would be more in the way of providing better jobs and situations for people. Because uh, th- those are big numbers, and we are not seeing gun violence fall. Mm-hmm. It's not solving the problem. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Surprising almost no one, Amelia Sykes announced a bid for Congress, even though congressional maps are being redrawn. Seth, what district does she seek, and will it get better for her through the redrawing? The, the, the idea that Summit County was one of those that was split that the Supreme Court said should not have been, if they make that more contiguous, does that make it any easier race for Amelia Sykes? If if they keep a a predominantly Summit County seat, you know, don't split it off like they, you know, did prior, which it seems to be that, you know, the court kind of said, hey, don't do that. Uh, yeah, I do think it becomes a little bit easier for her. Right now, she was running in the 13th Congressional District, which, um, you know, has been overturned. But it ran from Akron, the, you know, Akron and some of the west, western summit suburbs, uh, included Medina, and then a lot of the southern and western suburbs of Cuyahoga County, which are actually some, that's some pretty Republican areas, some conservative areas. Um, you know, if she gets a wholly contained summit county seat, uh, I do think it makes it a little easier for her because she can bring in some of those more uh, liberal suburbs of Akron. And, uh, you know, it all just kind of depends where it goes off from there. But yeah, I do think she could have an easier time going forward. Yeah, I there was a lot of thought that when she was on the redistricting commission, there were people that were worried that she was going to make some kind of deal to engineer district for herself, which she did not do. And she opposed the districts as they were drawn. She actually represented Ohioans very well in trying to stop the gerrymandering. Uh, but but in the end, it seems like there will be a seat based in Akron that a Democrat likely will win. And she seems like she's in a great position to run for it. Who's likely to be her competition? Well, again, it sort of depends on how the district gets drawn, right? As it stands right now, her only Democratic challenger are, is Matthew Deemer, who is from Rocky River. But again, if these districts get redrawn to not kind of, you know, creep all the way up into Cuyahoga County, that's sort of irrelevant. On the Republican side, you've got Max Miller, uh, also from Rocky River, Shea Hawkins from Broadview Heights, and uh, Jonah Schultz from Cleveland. Again, if that district gets redrawn, you know, there's a good chance that none of those people are going to be in that district. So it, we, we, we honestly don't know uh, what her competition is going to look like. I will say that I wouldn't be totally surprised if she got a, a another Democratic challenger in an Akron-based seat, even though that is, you know, her base of power, just because they're they're, you know, she's not a divisive figure in the Democratic Party. She's actually fairly well liked, but there is a contingency of people who are upset over, you know, the handling of Larry Householder and you know her kind right. of role in that. So that that right. could be a weakness for her, um, especially because you you could see the first energy thing being very important in that district because first energy is based in Akron. So right. that that is a that is a pretty glaring weak spot for her. But you know whether that you know, uh, goads a challenger into getting in, um, or like a well-funded one who will be able to garner support. 
I, we'll, we'll just kind of have to wait and see. Well, the other thing is these seats don't get open like this, but every 10 years. Yeah. And so unless they do four year seats, but but this is a chance if you want to run for Congress where they're redrawing districts this is your chance to get in and become the incumbent. So we'll have to see what the new maps are that they won't come for a little while because they have to do the legislative ones first. It's today in Ohio. Ohioans keep subsidizing an Indiana coal plant because of the part of corrupt House Bill 6 that was not repealed. But could Ohioans get a reprieve soon because of problems at that plant? Laura, Mike DeWine, when he talked to us, said he wasn't crazy about Ohioans subsidizing an Indiana coal plant. Are we going to get out of this? It's possible. And it's because of bad news for the environment and good news for Ratepayers, and that's because the Clifty Creek power plant in Madison is using unlined surface ponds to hold coal, coal ash. This is a residual byproduct of burning coal that, if doesn't properly get stored, can contaminate groundwater and the air with toxins like mercury, cadmium, and arsenic. So right now, that's what it's been doing. But it's asked for a continuance from the EPA so that it can continue its extension of not having to properly decontaminate this water. And the EPA is basically uh, might be turning that down. And if they turn it down, then we won't have to pay for that plant anymore because it will not be operating. So almost every time we talk about the coal plants on this podcast and mention that Bill Seitz is a big, in, big in favor of all this, he sends an email to say, coal is the future. We have to have coal in the future. <laughs> I, have we heard from him on what he thinks about unlined lakes that are that are collecting coal ash and polluting the environment see in favor of that to preserve coal do we know i've not been able to ask him this question i don't think we have ever asked him point blank that i'm sure that the the answer would not be a simple yes or no there'd be a talking point about the jobs created and and such and such but if this plant does get closed it's going to save hundreds of millions of dollars to ohioans have been propping it up for years. And there's a study that says if we continue to prop up this plant and another one in Ohio, the Kyger Creek plant, we're going to be out $1.8 billion by 2030. I mean, that is not jump change. That is no. a whole lot of money. The HB6 was just the most ridiculous, corrupt bill of our lifetimes. I can't believe there's anybody still defending parts of it. It's today in Ohio, and that wraps up the podcast for today. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens.